there is a, a connection of a vague kind between these French figures and the American progressivism and woke tendencies. And there's also some link with the rubbish in cultural studies departments and in Australian universities and American universities. There is a connection, but it's a connection based on the most extraordinary ignorance. Because people who have these completely ludicrous views are almost always attacking essentialism. But our friends, the French philosophers, were not attacking essentialism. <laughs> I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm Assistant Director at the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University, and I work in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. My return guest today is Professor Wayne Hudson, and this is actually the second part of a two-part exploration of European philosophy. So the first part was on Germany, and in particular, the prominent figures of Kant, Hegel and Schelling. So if you haven't listened to that, be sure to check it out. In this second part, this follow-up, we're going to turn our attention to France and we're going to look at again three seminal figures or philosophical personalities. And they are Derrida, Foucault and Deleuze. But Wayne, before we get into that, uh, for the benefit of listeners who haven't listened to part A and would like to know a little bit about who this person Wayne Hudson is, and even for the benefit of those who did listen to the first one and would like to know a little bit more about this uh, really interesting <laughs> thinker, uh, let's do a little bit more background. Now, I know you're very modest, so I'm going to take the reins here and force you to talk about a couple of the areas that you have distinguished yourself in. And the first thing I'd just like to, to uh invite you just to say a little bit about is to go back to when you did your doctoral studies, which was at the University of Oxford, and you actually studied under a prominent Polish philosopher. How about you tell people a little bit about that? Yes, well, I think that's the main thing to say is that although I studied in Oxford, I wasn't involved with or influenced by English academics. I was mainly influenced by and friendly with European academics. And my uh, doctoral supervisor was uh, Leszek Kolakowski in English pronunciation, and he was the leading Marxist revisionist in Poland, who then turned against the Communist Party and became a, a critic of Marxism. But he'd been the professor of the history of philosophy in Warsaw, and working with Leszek was completely unbelievable because he knew every figure in the history of Western philosophy. He could quote the text without opening a book. He gave lectures without, full of untranslated Greek and Latin. So he, he could refer to all disciplines, and if you brought up anything, he'd refer to the most recent books in that discipline in all European languages. So it was quite intimidating, obviously, and pretty terrifying a lot of the time. But it did give me a very different view of European philosophy to the one that Australians have or the one that English or Americans have. Because, of course, he knew them all from the inside. He'd written a major book in French on Dutch philosophical thinkers. He'd written a major study in Polish on Spinoza. He'd written uh, in other languages. He'd studied in Russia uh, under de Boren, the leading Soviet revisionist. So you're dealing with someone who had a definitely concrete knowledge of each individual country, the thinkers, and in most cases, the languages. And so this is not a typical background for an Australian by any means. <laughs> no, most definitely. Now, you did your doctoral work on the thought of the uh, Jewish-German uh, Marxist philosopher Ernst Bloch from East Germany at the time that it was East uh, Germany. 
and you are today a world authority on uh, Bloch. But the most interesting thing, perhaps, and I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about this experience, is you actually met him and spent a bit of time with him, I believe, while you were doing your doctoral research and actually put some of your <laughs> your analysis to him. Yes, I... Well, of course, Bloch at that stage was not taken seriously in the English-speaking world. Almost all the books weren't translated. Bloch wrote extremely difficult German, and it's a nightmare for anyone to try to understand his German. Uh, ordinary Germans can't read things he wrote. Uh, and so I, I was finding it quite hard to know exactly what he meant. So I went off to Germany, to Tübingen, to, to meet him and his wife, Carola, and I spent about five hours with him the first time in non-stop conversation. And again, it was absolutely over overwhelming because he just assumed you knew everything about everything and he actually quizzed me about a recent book in in French on the philosophy of biology and what did I think and were the theses correct and so this again was terrifying stuff but it gave me a very good insight into what it was really like that these people were not the paper cardboard figures they'd been made in the English writing, but really very major people whose knowledge spread across many disciplines. Bloch was a very outstanding pianist. He'd studied physics, mathematics, philosophy, and music at university. And he's probably as eminent in the philosophy of music as he, in, as he is in political philosophy. So he was a very substantial figure. And that wasn't reflected in the things that Anglo-Saxons were saying at the time. And then I saw him a second time when he was old and quite ill. And that was for a very extensive interview, which I've since published. And that was terrific because I then had read everything and I was able to say to him, look, I don't think you've quite told the world the story. You've really been influenced by people you don't mention. And I went into, into in particular, one uh, 19th century Catholic theologian that no one in Australia has ever heard of. And indeed, his main book is based on a book by that Catholic theologian. And when I said that to him, Locke burst out laughing and said, only you and I in the world know that. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting. And then later I became very friendly with his widow, Carola, and I visited her a number of times, and she read the whole book before I published it. That was terribly helpful, and because she was able to say, I don't think that's quite right, and yes, you're right, but not quite, and so on. And Wayne, uh, you're, this is not your only claim to fame. You are a sort of world authority in not one, not even two, but three different areas. Bloch is the first one, but the second one is actually English deism, which is a feels a bit out of left field. How did you even get into English deism? Well, of course, like everyone else, I needed a topic for a master's thesis. It had to be something you could do in Australia, so it couldn't be something where you couldn't get the texts. And I had, at that stage, a very distinguished Jewish writer called Peter Gay at Yale had written a book on deism, which I thought was absolute nonsense. And since I thought it was absolute nonsense, I thought I could write a thesis saying, really, that the truth was something else. And I did do that to a, in a way to a fault because I decided these people at that time were regarded as Anglican clergymen who'd got too radical. And I argued in my work that on the contrary, they were members of a European underground using clandestine manuscripts and very much influenced by European thinkers. At the time, that was regarded at Sydney University as extremely strange. My supervisor agreed with me, but the senior professor did not. They thought this was uh, simply beyond comprehension that anyone could say this. I did say that. And about five years later, a very eminent American historian of the 18th century discovered all the clandestine manuscripts in Holland. So I was right, but it caused me trouble because people didn't think I was right at the time. So I went on with it over many, many years. And now I've published three books on it because what it shows is a different perspective on the development of 
Christianity in the West, on the development of the secular, on the relationship between religion and enlightenment, and also on the nature of atheism. So it has big implications for things everyone's interested in. So I'm coming in from Manorian figures to discuss more major issues. And Wayne, the third area of expertise or authority is that you have managed to make yourself an authority on Australian religious thought. And you've even published a book with Monash University Press called Australian Religious Thought. Tell us about that. Well, it's a bit the same. I mean, I got a bit interested in various Australian writers and intellectuals who'd had ideas about religion or the critique of religion, and I found they weren't taken seriously by Australians and that there was nothing on this in Australian historical writing. And I also found that the older generation of Australian historians had decided that this was the most secular country in the world and these Australians were essentially latent atheists who only needed to be told and then it was okay. So I got angry about that and started to look at the people I found and then eventually I found there weren't just four or five people but five or six hundred people that Australian religious thought was an enormous area that had never been properly written about and it shows that the secular in Australia was not as the historians claimed anti-Christian or secular in a modern sense, but a kind of common Christianity. And it led me to continue a theme I'd already raised in the block book, that distinctions between belief and disbelief are not very helpful analytically, because everybody's both, and then in a way you can't make the choices that religious thinkers suggest, or the choices that anti-religious suggest, because human beings are, are stuck with the unconscious they have, and it is of a certain kind, and we know what it is. So I was concerned to try and correct the Australian record by insisting that this discussion was much more important than people said, that it, go, that it went to matters of really importance in Australian political legal history. The last point is in a recent book I've just done, an Australian jurist. And again, the point is not yet understood, that this religious background was very important here. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, it strikes me that we could easily do a podcast just focusing on the sort of intellectual history of Wayne Hudson, because <laughs> that would be absolutely fascinating. And I, I know you very well and I've, I've been in daily conversation with you for many years now. So I know that we're barely plumbing the depths here. Well, you should warn your listeners that I also have a passionate interest in contemporary China. Oh, well, well, they yes, those who have listened to your, we'll uh, your first episode on, on the political animals way back uh we'll we'll be well aware of that but um i mean e even that wayne is quite quite significant because i believe you first visited china in the 1960s if i'm not mistaken and it's not just china you're you've you you know japan and you've been you've had a long interest in asia isn't that right yes i've got a lot of asian involvement but i was there in the cultural revolution and i went to lectures by red guards i went to struggle sessions so I actually had lectures on dialectical materialism from Red Guards. So I think, again, I can claim a bit more of an insider's view than you're normally exposed to. I'm not, of course, a sinologist. I must stress that. But I did find the whole thing fantastically interesting. And I think it's as interesting now as it was then. Oh, no doubt. And you, you published a, quite a substantial article uh, contemporaneously, I think, when you came back to Australia in one of the Australian papers that Australia, you kindly shared with me and was fascinating. I did four or five articles at the Sydney Morning Herald. They didn't publish all of them because in one of them I said that the Chinese weren't going to invade us immediately because they had no navy. But this was controversial <laughs> and therefore they didn't publish it. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it, it also occurs to me that if we underdid the first introduction, maybe we've overdone the second one. But personally, I just think it's so fascinating. fascinating. And I think it is important to establish your credentials to talk about this topic. So let's get to the, the topic and we will follow the format that we did with the Germans. And 
you, Wayne, will be focusing particularly on the ways in which these French philosophical figures are misunderstood in the English-speaking world, but also with a view to what is significant about their thought and perhaps what the contribution is. And we're going to continue a theme here because the first figure is none other but that very obscure man, Jacques Derrida, which I'm sure no one has heard of, who was born in 1930 and died in 2004. The reason I say we're continuing on the theme is you also met this person, Derrida, didn't you, I think, in France and had the opportunity to spend a bit of time with him. Tell us about that and what he was like. Well, I was teaching in the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands over many years. And so one year I took all my students down to Paris because they wanted to meet the French philosophers. And so we met five or six of the main French philosophers. And we went in particular to see Derrida and he had forgotten we were coming. And so he'd forgotten we were coming. And as a result, he gave us more time. We were very lucky. And he spent about four hours with us, with us all together and, and talked nonstop in a mixture of English and French for the whole period. Then I had some conversation with him later. Uh, and it was extremely interesting because, again, you had a sort of Anglo-Saxon cliche in your mind. I'd read a lot of his stuff, but I, French is not my main language, obviously. And I didn't have a, a detailed feeling for individual words and when you were in his presence you couldn't miss it that this again was not the kind of person that English and Americans had made of him that this was a French moralist this was a profoundly religious person with an extremely ethical sense who was extremely serious but not entirely serious in what he was saying in his books that'll be a theme of my comments one of the things that lead the Anglo-Saxons to misunderstand the French is that in English you you can't get up at, a, at an academic conference and say things that aren't true. People become upset and you can't say things that you don't think are true. That would also cause some uproar, but there's no problem about that in France because they have the concept of an intervention and they, of, a, of a provocation. And if you can change the discourse, this is seen as a very serious contribution. And if you do it by fictionalizing 19th century history of prisons, that's fine. Well, not in Anglo-Saxonry it's not, but in France it is. Because in France, the philosopher is seen as closer to the artist and the novelist and the poet. And of course, these people are very well aware of the major French writers of the last 300 years, indeed of European writers, but particularly French writers. And they do, in a sense, approach the question of what they call philosophy as cultural creatives. They see their task as to change the discourse. They're not sitting at home spending 25 years on one minor problem in mathematical logic. They do it at university in a minor way, but none of them have written anything important about mathematical logic. None of them have made any contribution to science of any kind. And they really aren't into that stuff in the final analysis. They are very much figures of French cultural avant-gardism. The surrealist avant-garde in France was, as everyone knows, enormous. And these people are philosophical continuers of that stance, where you shake the tree, you bring down an older discourse, you attack it from within, and you say things that are outrageous and promote change. And when eventually someone says, well, that was overstated, you burst out laughing and say, well, of course, you wouldn't have taken it literally. But Anglo-Saxons don't get the joke. <laughs> So uh, I suspect, as you say, this will continue a theme. So let's move straight on to our second figure. Now, well, we didn't say enough about Oh, of course, the contribution. Say, no, we should say a little bit more about him. I mean, he, 
he went through many phases, and you need to know the phases. And at various times, he flied various kites. He was rather ruthless about that, and that is very French too. So if by calling myself a Scientologist, I could become world famous, I would. And he did something like that. He presented many faces, and each time when it was shot down, he changed the face. And he kept on talking about the central concept, difference. And eventually, after about 20 years, he had to say, well, he couldn't define it. It didn't have any clear meaning. But he did say that it was roughly along the same lines as religion without religion, which wasn't what his audience was expecting. And so at the end of his life, he became again very famous as a religious thinker, having previously been a Marxist, a materialist, an anti-humanist, and so on. All of these various Derrida's were fake. They were all characters on the stage. But behind it, there was an immensely serious an ethically very upright person who was trying to bring about ethical shift. He was a, an ethically active agent. And he wrote very well about a number of particular problems. He wasn't the kind of uh, truth evader or, or intellectual fraud that some of his critics suggested. He was quite the opposite. He was very rigorous and committed, but he wasn't doing what they thought. He was into cultural change. So let's move straight into the next figure, Michel Foucault. Uh, to describe him as controversial but also influential would be an understatement today in in the West. He, he's either either a kind of devil incarnate for many conservatives or he's the great sort of uh, intellectual that we should all follow for certain uh, progressives, only certain progressives. Uh, he, he was a contemporary of Derrida and actually uh, all three, Derrida, Foucault and Deleuze, were 20th century um, men that were born within a couple of years of each other, actually. And so Foucault was born in 1926. He passed away in 1984. Uh, who, were, who was Michel Foucault? In what ways he misunderstood? <laughs> yes, and okay. what was his contribution? Well, the point about all of these people is that they're all avant-gardists in that French cultural line. They are not the philosophers in France. That's a basic mistake the Americans made. The Americans made two mistakes. One is they thought these people were the French philosophers because they didn't know the names of the French philosophers. And then they thought there was something called post-structuralism or French theory. And this dominated America for nearly 30 years before clever Americans wrote excellent books showing this is all nonsense. There never was any French theory. There was bunk in America called theory, but everyone's abandoned that now. And there certainly was no French postmodernism. This was more uh, American nonsense. These people were not the philosophers in France. These people were uh, writers, and they became very famous by writing for presses that published paperbacks. They didn't write scientific papers. They didn't address highly academic audiences. They played to the school child and to people in France with that level of knowledge, which of course is very high. It's not like an Anglo-Saxon country. You could discuss some major medieval philosopher to a large French audience. People who've been to good schools in France know these things, and they spoke to those people. They were not arguing with the major philosophers in America. When they went to America, they talked to historians and literary figures, never philosophers, because philosophers, of course, quickly pointed out that the terms were unclear. These people weren't in the philosophy game, as we seriously understand it. Uh, Foucault was a different type of figure to Derrida entirely because he too was trying to blow up the boat. He too was trying to upset the older discourses. But his candidates were very French. And again, two points I'd like to make that are not well understood in the English-speaking world is that all of these French people are very influenced by Germans. The German-French contrast is quite wrong-headed because French people of this kind have a lot of German and are deeply immersed in the German tradition. So the influence of Heidegger is very great in the case of Derrida. 
not in the case of Deleuze, and somewhat on the, on the borders, certainly, of Foucault. And so what you've got is an attempt to get rid of particular nonsense in France. Now, Foucault became famous for an attack on the idea of man. He said it was a recent construction and invention and all the rest of it. But he was actually talking about a French tradition, the French tradition of the sciences of man, which never existed in any Anglo-Saxon country. It was a particular French exaggeration that he attacked. So a lot of his, ca- his actual attack was on French issues or influenced by French debates or French writers. Again, I emphasize the writers because Foucault is heavily influenced by the French avant-garde and those major French writers of this tendency, whereas Anglo-Saxons know the names but often haven't read the books. They don't quite get it. He wasn't a philosopher in any sense, Foucault. There's no contribution uh, to philosophy from him of any kind. He was, in a sense, a a post-philosopher because he was saying the crucial questions were to be solved by looking at the empirical record. He was not offering a philosophical answer to a philosophical question. He was saying that if you did the research, that question would be blown out of the water. But of course, he didn't do the research, really. He was fake in the area of empirical research. He wrote books that were quasi-fictions. And when people pointed that out to him eventually, he burst out laughing because he was, of course, a brilliant speaker. And he spoke extremely fast, and he always with an enormous grin. And of course, the Anglos were a bit slow not to realize this was funny. They didn't quite, they took it straight, but it wasn't straight. And when they said to him, well, you're not right about the history of prisons. You're not right about the history of madness. He burst out laughing and said, well, of course not. You don't really think I'm an historian, do you? Again, it was a misunderstanding because the Gallic wit in France is seen as part of the way to discovery, whereas Anglo-Saxons are fearful of it in the same sense. So I would give Foucault a lot of credit for changing discourse, which is what he set out to do, for opening up areas of research. The area that's most dramatic and easy to understand is that he wrote, of course, on the history of sexuality. The first book is Freudian Nonsense. He then met an authority on antiquity, Pierre Adot, and learned from Adot that he was totally wrong about it all, so he changed his line, and then wrote books pointing out that sexuality in the ancient world was nothing like modern sexuality. Now, that's a good example of how stepping into the empirical, even in a fictional mode, enabled him to change the discourse. And so the whole discussion of sexuality has been changed by Foucault. This is a major contribution. To think of him as a philosopher is simply weak-minded. Okay, let's go on to, um, I'm looking forward to having a more general discussion, but let's, let's cap off the third party to this uh, little parlor, and that is Gilles Deleuze, who was born in 1925 and passed away in, ni- uh, in 1995. Um, who was Deleuze, in what way was he misunderstood, and what is his contribution? Well, Deleuze is a different type entirely. He's not mm. like the other two. And the key to Deleuze, there are, there are two keys to Deleuze. On the one hand, Deleuze wanted to say that the real business of philosophy has to be metaphysics, real metaphysics. And so he was completely dismissive of all the evasions of philosophy that characterised the Anglo-Saxon world. He wanted to go back to hardcore metaphysics. And so with Deleuze, you get an alternative metaphysics. The problem was, of course, he didn't have any metaphysical ability and his doctrines are not defensible and he failed totally as a metaphysical thinker. On the other hand, he had an amazing ability to open up areas that were closed. So that's the link, I think, with Foucault, that like Foucault, an area could be changed once Deleuze wrote about it. And again, there's a heavy German influence, but the main influence that is not stressed enough in English writing, although the best person on it is an Australian in Singapore, uh, is 
French Manorian mathematics. In English-speaking countries, philosophers don't have a lot of maths. They do maths at school and uni sometimes, but they're not pure mathematicians. They, they like numbers and they like mathematical logic at an elementary level, but they don't really like pure maths. They don't write new category theories. They certainly don't make an invention in, in inventions in mathematics, and they don't know the history of mathematics. But in France, that's not true. And even someone like Lyotard, who's seen as a sort of postmodernist in some American writing, in fact had a vast knowledge of the history of mathematics. Uh, Deleuze was an expert on Minorian French mathematics. These are French mathematical thinkers Anglo-Saxons have never heard of. He wrote about them and he, he used their ideas to present metaphysical type riddles with which we're not familiar, particularly the thesis. The difference is, is in some sense fundamental, not in Derrida's sense, but in his own sense, that, the, that that is more fundamental than identity. So what you had in Deleuze was a radical challenging of traditional ideas, the proposing of alternative ideas, and the use of little-known mathematical thinkers to complicate things enormously. And his importance is that he really does elevate the discussion to a new level. And even if you reject what he says, and I would reject what he says about almost everything, uh, you do think about it a bit more differently after him. He forces you to take account of heterogeneity, and he really worries you about the idea that ontological structure is given at the beginning. And here he's influenced other figures in France, particularly in biology, who are now taking world biology in another direction. So this is an important thinker. Again, I don't think he's a philosopher. I think that's a misunderstanding. But his use of French mathematics is extremely creative and an important uh, qualification to the dreariness of the Anglo-Saxons and the Americans in particular, who have made no contribution to mathematics really since Peirce. Peirce was a great uh, mathematical thinker as well as a great philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers of the last 200 years. But more recent American philosophers don't go into high math. If anything, they replay pragmatism and suggest that we can do philosophy by reasoning about small topics very well. Well, Deleuze didn't think that. He thought that philosophy should invent new concepts. He thought they were invented. And that's a very French idea, because French think that mathematics is a system of metaphor and paradox that we invent. Anglo-Saxons don't think that. And then in Deleuze, the transfer to philosophy is easy. Philosophy, too, is a system of, of paradox and metaphor based on mathematical examples. And I'm very sympathetic to this move in Foucault, even though I do Deleuze, even though I don't personally like his views, because it actually takes us in a creative direction. And there's now a major new development in mathematics called diagrammatology, which applies category theory to take up the use of diagrams that Peirce pioneered. So this is a good example of our whole discussion, because when French thinkers are influenced by American thinkers of the first rank, like Peirce, we get first-rate developments outside of philosophy. So the... Most obvious question, or the first question that comes to mind, Wayne, is a bit of a how question. That is, you've you've spoken in a bit of detail already about the, in particular, American uh, misreception, if that's even a word. We'll, we'll coin it's it word, here. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Can't claim credit for, credit for that. So the how question is, how did these French figures become so influential in certain pockets of American academia and why such a bad or misguided or mistaken reception in America? Obviously, you've pointed to the cultural difference and the lack of awareness of the particular French debates that um, the likes of Derrida and Foucault were engaged in, the German influence uh, on their thought uh, the French temperament, perhaps, the, the aspect of humour, the affectation. 
Um, but I, I sense the, the, the part of this story is that it illuminates an aspect of American culture, temperament, yes. intellectual well, tradition. Yes. Well, the first thing you need to know is the history of philosophy is not taught in American universities except in Catholic universities. There's a bit of it in a few outstanding places like the University of Chicago, but it tends to have there a Jewish flavour that's also problematic, not because it's Jewish, but because it leads to reading people in one way rather than another. But essentially, people who call themselves philosophers in America are not trained in the history of philosophy, unlike in France. That's a huge gap, you see. And then uh, it's important to see that the reception of these ideas in America came through literary figures, through art critics, and through people teaching French. Now, people teaching French have enormous amounts of French, obviously, but not much philosophy, no logic, and usually very little maths. So in a sense, they weren't able to see that what the French were saying was obviously false. And so part of the reception was uh, that this was exciting, new, and overthrowing the whole of Western thought. Well, nobody thought that except a few people in the United States, but they did think that. And then they didn't know anything about the Western thought they thought was overthrown. Uh, so when the French said that we now had overthrown metaphysics and quoted Heidegger, they repeated it. Whereas anyone trained would have said, well, Heidegger, of course, had no valid critique of metaphysics because he also didn't contribute to philosophy. Uh, so that's part of it. Another part of the story is that, of course, in France, there's a very distinguished philosophical tradition in the 19th century up to about 1920, and Americans know nothing about that. So when these French people were saying things, they were very often citing earlier French discussion, but Americans haven't heard of it. For example, when Derrida starts talking about différence, well, that was a debate in 19th century French thought. But no one in America knows that now, let alone then. So the ignorance of 19th century French thought is part of this story. Another part of the story is that some people like Richard Rorty, who were doing analytic philosophy and thought it didn't work, were attracted by playing with the French because it seemed almost to offer another way. So there were American intellectuals who thought you could do a kind of post-analytic philosophical writing. This was very popular in the US until eventually it turned out that what the French were saying was false. And then the people saying this in America had no production either. Rorty was very influential as a popular writer. He has no contribution of any kind to philosophy. I knew Rorty also quite well, and I interviewed him in Heidelberg in 1979. In fact, I was the person who told him that he was a postmodernist. He used that phrase evermore, but he forgot that I told him. But the point about Rorty was that he, again, has no contribution to philosophy. His books were widely read. His essays were vastly admired by people who can't do mathematical logic and who don't understand what a valid proof is. And Rorty didn't understand what a valid proof was either. The next territory I'd like to move into is political, because uh, I know I don't need to tell you, and I, I alluded to this uh, earlier, that Foucault in particular, but even the French, just as a, as a in inverted commas, as a as a term, uh, certainly on the political right these days, or, or the more intellectual right that is interested in ideas, um, evokes a, a sense of responsibility, really, for what they see as the degeneration of culture, civilization, um, and in particular. French figures like Foucault get associated, rightly or wrongly, with things like neo-Marxism, which is supposed to have be the sort of main paradigm that uh, explains the degenerate thinking that has captured our universities. Um, I would I would like to get your opinion on particularly this conservative narrative that I know you're aware of, but it, but also beyond that, just what what is the actual political influence? Do you think of these French thinkers or French thought writ large in 
contemporary Anglo-Saxon societies? Well, again, we have to be very careful. We're talking about thinkers on the right in the Anglo-Saxon world, not in France, not in Germany, not in Russia. The discussion in France among the right is quite different. And major figures on the right in France know a great deal about these figures, thank you, and don't talk the tripe that Anglo-Saxons talk, because they often knew them personally. The thing that perhaps is not understood by people on the right in Anglo-Saxon countries is that the French Communist Party was a kind of church in France. It had a major... Because the church in France failed before the revolution, after the revolution, the state became the church in France, and the Communist Party became the messianic movement. And all kinds of French intellectuals and philosophers and historians and all kinds of people joined the party, were sympathetic to the party. Indeed, you could say lied for the party. This was not the common pattern in the United States or Britain, but in France it was the pattern. Uh, and with that went a kind of hostility, sometimes to traditional religion, but at the same time a transfer of it into a new political religion. And the background to all of these people that is not stressed enough is that these people had all got some sort of connection at some point with Marxism, but they weren't advocating, this is a complete caricature in the conservative press, I mean, Marxist is not where they ended, it's where they started. Derrida was close to the Communist Party as a younger man. And he, it's arguable he should have failed his doctorate, which is very bad, and he was passed by examiners who were communist or sympathetic to communism. But of course, he goes on to reject all that. He does, uh, of course, at the end of his life, return to Marx in a certain way, but it's the Marx of, of Jewish messianism. It's not uh, a defence of Stalinism or a defence of Lenin or anything like that. Foucault, too, is not in any sense a Stalinist or a Leninist. In fact, a lot of his work could be seen as destructive of that tradition. So the rejection and failure of the French Communist Party is a very big part of this story. And therefore, the, um, the right in Anglo-Saxon countries have got it totally wrong. These people are not Marxists in their sense. They're not supporters of any state socialist regime, and they're certainly not friendly to the Soviet Union or to China now. Uh, but do you of course was sympathetic to the Maoists, but that's a, a, a discussion for another day. So their particular politics again has a lot to do with France because in France these sort of people tend to see themselves on the left. The left in France doesn't mean what it means in England or America or Canada. It means that you take people to expensive restaurants, you live in a very nice apartment and you live in Paris or some other very grand place and you never visit a factory any time in your life. In fact you don't know anyone who's in the working class and you certainly don't read anything they write. It's a kind of upper-middle-class snobbery. We're on the left because we're on the progressive side of history. It's a sort of continuation of what can be seen as the politics of the philosophes, if you don't read them, because the philosophes also weren't on the left, but they could be seen in a certain way on the left later. So it's a complete misunderstanding by the conservatives in Anglo-Saxon countries, and the idea that this is Marxism is totally nonsense. Indeed, if you want to attack these people, the best way to do it would be by arguing that Marx was right about a lot of it, and that therefore what they're saying is false. So Marx is not on their side, he's against them, and they knew that too. So uh, setting aside contemporary conservatives in um, the Anglo world, what is the political impact or legacy, if any, if anything, in those countries? Or should we think of their legacy more in areas of literature and 
Well, they're not. Culture. There is a, a connection of a vague kind between these French figures and the American progressivism and woke tendencies. And there's also some link with the rubbish in cultural studies departments and in Australian universities and in American universities. There is a connection. But it's a connection based on the most extraordinary ignorance. Because people who have these completely ludicrous views are almost always attacking essentialism. But our friends, the French philosophers, were not attacking essentialism. Deleuze is more essentialist than anyone could possibly be, and indeed he's a scotus. So he's a hundred million percent on the other side, because he understands mathematics, and these people do not. In a similar sort of way, Derrida was asked in the interview eventually by Americans, now you are a postmodernist. Derrida says, no, 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 I'm not a postmodernist. I'm not even a modernist. I do not believe in the modern. So this is the story. Uh, a complete misunderstanding. Derrida, too, at the end of the day, has essentialist tendencies. In fact, you could say that there's a neo-Kantian element in Derrida and in Deleuze and in Foucault. They're not neo-Kantians, but they're influenced by it. So the reception in the United States among badly educated people is influenced by these people, but it completely misunderstands them and it gets their logical tradition totally wrong and it ignores their important work on philosophy of maths because none of the people pushing the garbage talk philosophy of maths. They talk literature. They talk uh, vague claims about history. They talk about gender. But they don't do biology and they don't do physics and they certainly don't do astrophysics. So that's the background to that. Uh, the figure that mediates some of the problems is Judith Butler in California. She has a, a really quite good book on the reception of Hegel in France. She understands the French quite well. But for the American audience, she writes vulgar because there's no other way of getting through to an uneducated public. And I need to say this at a risk of offending some people, but you can't understand the United States if you don't know that about 80% of the people are not educated in any serious way. And neither Biden nor Trump have any serious education. You can see it in their foreign policy people. You can see it in their generals. Ask the generals who the Shia are and they don't know. Ask them to name five Persian philosophers and they can't do it. They even struggle to name one Persian poet other than Rumi. So you have to know there's no education for maybe 90% of Americans and what they have learned is largely false. Well, this is very much not the case in France. The level of education among the elite in France is very high and it's not confined just to French. They can also discuss Vietnamese matters. They can discuss Russian matters. They know about Ukraine about the Ukraine. My last major engagement with the French thinker was in Crete, and this person had been going to the Ukraine for 10 years. The French are also extremely well informed about Africa, and all major books in, in French from Africa are translated immediately. So the French are very global in mentality and have very high standards, and unlike the foolish Anglo-Saxons, they don't separate the humanities from the sciences. They teach everybody all of it. And I think that's 100% right. And it produces a kind of wide rationalism. They're often attacked by political people as irrationalists. That's also not true. These people are all rationalists, providing you make some allowance for joke. There is a joke factor. But they are rationalists. And if you put up the hand and say, well, look, you forged that document, they'll come back and say, well, yes, but it was only a joke. I once said to Lyotard, uh, you write all, you're publishing all these essays that you're calling postmodernism, but you wrote them 20 years ago. You've just added postmodern to the title. And he burst out laughing and said, my dear, I only talk this nonsense in America. Really? That's what Lyotard That's himself what he told said, you? Yes, my dear, I only talk this nonsense in America. So because when the, French, when the Americans brought them over to Cornell, including Derrida, they brought Foucault for six weeks to Berkeley and sat down with him for, and asked him for six weeks what he meant. At the end, they found he didn't know. But they should have known before because they didn't ask him the right questions because they just didn't get it. 
Now, it's not that bad in Australia. Australia has produced some outstanding scholars of contemporary French thought, and we do have in our, among our French scholars at least two or three people of world level, and they absolutely understand what these French people are saying. There's an outstanding American-Australian scholar, Knox Peden, who's just written a wonderful book on Spinozism in France. We've got people in Australia who do know this stuff, but conservatives don't read their books. Conservatives take their opinions from other conservatives. Now, that's as bad as, as being a Marxist-Leninist and knowing all about Vietnam because you've read Pravda. <laughs> Wayne, I just want to go back to something you, you said a couple of times earlier. When, when we were running through the figures themselves, you articulated their contribution really as a kind of broadening of the horizon or, if you like, uh, you know, challenging and critiquing uh, certain elements of the status quo that had the potential to change discourse or open it up to new ideas and that it was in a way the process itself or the the outcome of the process rather than the content per se that made the contribution and I wonder whether any of that has filtered into the Anglo-Saxon reception or have they managed to receive these thinkers misunderstand them and actually miss their major contribution or or have those that have taken up Foucault and Derrida in places like Australia, um, the UK and the United States actually gone on to make similar contributions, do you think, on issue X, Y or Z? Well, you, you have to remember there's a lot of time involved. We're talking about 60 years. Some of these books were published. The early Derrida books are from the 1960s. It's a long, long time ago. And they were reflecting debates from the 1950s. So the French radicals were always operating in a particular space. And often it was very French, as I've stressed, and often it doesn't pertain now. So nobody's doing that now, often because the world has changed. The, the problem, if you were doing it now, you'd attack uh, definitions of money. You'd talk about what's wrong with economic theory. Now, that's being done brilliantly in France and also brilliantly in the United States, uh, not so much in Australia, but certainly at Princeton and in Paris, it is being done. I don't think that the subversive stuff is as strong. In fact, what's happened in France in many ways is that this tradition has died. The last person doing it was Stigler, who was running the Pompidou. He died last year. And I don't think there's anyone left really doing this in France. And in many ways, analytic philosophy is now being taught in France, or philosophy is not being taught at all. So the French are now falling into the same disaster that the Americans have fallen into, where you stop teaching your people the great thinkers of the past. You teach them elementary algebra and call it philosophy. And you produce people who can't critique their society or their culture. There's no critique of American society of a world level by an American in the last 30 years. Their critique of America is extremely inferior. And that's not because they're not brilliant people. It's because you're in a culture that doesn't have culture and doesn't have the history of philosophy. And while it does have some logic, it doesn't have the history of maths. So part of the solution is more history of maths everywhere, not to produce numerate idiots, but to produce people who can think in more complex ways. And that would bring our French and German examples together. Because while those Germans we mentioned were not primarily writing about maths, they were doing in a linguistic form tricks of the kind that high maths people do. There is a link there. So I think the French and Germans could come together around a new kind of education that is very mathematical. And let me throw a last bomb. This new mathematical education doesn't have to use numbers. So you pick up all the non-numerates as well. 
because it isn't about numbers. It's about thinking in an abstract, non-higher order way that, that allows paradox if it's productive. Otherwise, you get stuck in the sort of English mess, and it's not as though there are any good books uh, criticizing society coming from England. There aren't. Uh, you get the English mess where everybody talks as though the universe is made of common sense entities. And both physics and biology contradict that. And astrobiology particularly contradicts it. So I think the Anglo-Saxon world is a cultural failure. I'm much more critical of it than probably anyone else much. And I don't think that the French and the Germans should be written off. But they are at the moment not doing well. There are no important thinkers in Germany at the moment, apart from a couple of critical theorists. There are no major world philosophers in France at the moment. Uh, there is... Uh, an excellent phenomenologist, Romano, who one could name eight or nine very important people. There are a few theological thinkers in France who are quite important. But though both the German and the French traditions seem to have ended. And partly it is that they didn't work enough on the rigorous argumentation that the medieval scholastics showed them how to do. So I would say that when we abandoned medieval scholasticism, as we had to do, we made a huge mistake. Because although we should have dropped the medieval doctrines as we did, we shouldn't have dropped the rigour of argument. And on this point, I'm sympathetic to analytical philosophy, including American, because rigour of argument gets somewhere. That leads me to one final question, uh, prompted by something you said specifically in that little segment there, and that is to do with both the legacy of French and German philosophy. I'm going to bring them together now, particularly on the European continent. And I wonder to what extent the most prominent figures from Europe who are now being read and lauded in the West, and I'm thinking in particular of Slavoj, Slavoj Žižek, who I know you would not regard as a philosopher, and he's a very idiosyncratic, eccentric, and enigmatic individual. But I see shades of the French humour and joking. I kind of wonder sometimes how serious <laughs> he is himself and whether he really believes his own words or whether he's really being provocative again to try and change the discourse. But then a slightly different fig figure is Giorgio Agamben, who you know is much studied these days. And I wonder whether he represents a new development in in the continent, continent or whether really the way to understand Agamben again is in his relationship to the French and Germans that preceded him? Well, the two cases are not the same because Zizek is an outstanding person in the popular media. He's had huge influence, partly through his ability to talk so brilliantly about movies, but he also has an excellent book on opera. He's not only able to talk about movies, he's an utterly brilliant journalistic writer, and he's made some quite substantial philosophical contributions. He's not a philosopher, but his book, his recent writing on Hegel is really quite significant and he has a brilliant two chapters on one word in Fichte. So if you think that uh, German philosophy is obscure, well have a look at two chapters by Zizek on one word in Fichte and he's right about it. So he's important because he's saying to a popular audience, don't give up the highbrow. It'll explain movies and it'll also explain the universe you're in. And he's right on both, I think. He's a different type of figure. Uh, Agamben is totally different. After French theory there's a new discourse of this kind called French, Italian theory. And so you don't read French theory anymore, there isn't any, you read the Italians. And Agamben is one of them, About there are about six of them, the most important is uh, Esposito. But Agamben is a very, very uh, serious philologist with an enormous knowledge of the Latin language and 
to some extent the Greek language. He's saturated in German things. He studied with Heidegger. And he is writing books that are beautifully written, again, in the French way, aiming to upset the discourse. And his importance is that he does upset the discourse. What he literally says is probably not right in any book. He has a modernist conception of language that is totally false, but he has problematized the nature of sovereignty, the nature of modern biopolitics, and the nature of law. Now, these are not small things to have done, and he does them in books that are academically indefensible. So some people write brilliant essays pointing out it's, it's not okay, but they have no influence, whereas he does. So one of the issues this really unifies our whole conversation is that while excellent philosophy of a kind of technical kind is still done and read by people who only do that, the stuff that is influencing the culture more generally is a kind of ex-philosophy in the sense that it doesn't conform to traditional high norms, but it shapes the public mind in a quasi-intellectual space by putting out exciting ideas, by problematizing older discourses, and by perhaps reminding people that we do need some general ideas. And in that sense, I have to admit a bit of sympathy both for Zizek and Agamben, because although I think what they say tends to be false, it's important that someone talks that high. Otherwise, we shrink down to the terrible level of Western politicians. I guess perhaps you could say it's the difference between uh, saying something that is false and saying something, saying nothing that is true, <laughs> in the yes. sense that you, you, you are right and airtight about the small trivial issue of the logic of language in analytical philosophy yes, yes. or you say something ginormous which can't that's poss right, be possibly right. yes. true well, in, but um, still in a way changes the course of history. A good way to understand it I think is that until perhaps 1920 European civilization is overwhelmingly shaped by classics. Everybody who matters has done Greek and Latin. Greek is a language that really upper class people have studied even in politics, and particularly in Germany. People who went to gymnasium learned German, learned Greek, as well as Latin. And therefore, the classical heritage is still alive as a way of thinking in a general way. If you want about the nature of the good, you're going to refer to Aristotle and, and, and Socrates and then other Greeks. Now, this is all now died. Greek is nearly gone now. In, in New South Wales, it's no longer a school subject. The, hardly any Australian intellectuals have real mastery of ancient Greek. This is producing a huge idiocy across the West. And there's nothing to replace it. Now, these people are offering a kind of replacement. And so part of where we're at, and this is a huge issue for another podcast, is that we're brought up on the Greek bivalence between true and false. But what we see from these influential avant-gardist philosophic writers not philosophers, but philosophic writers, is that they do reopen the, quest, the, the space of the general. And I think they're right to do that, even if what they say is, you know, in a literalistic sense, false. And I think it's very important to see that we need it, because we can't just have a world made up of specialists in minor variations of one particular science, or people who know about one problem in philosophy or politics or economics. We need general thinkers. We, we don't have general thinkers anymore that are classically inspired. That's part of the problem. We, I'm not arguing we go back to the classical languages, but we do need a substitute. And I think along the way, we may have to accept a higher level of fictionality than we ever have until now. That's part of the shift we're living in. Well, and I think that provocative thought right there is a good place to, to end in the spirit of the, the French thinkers that we have uh, 
discussed and surveyed uh thank you so much for coming on the show for this second part part b of this two-part series on european philosophy that i'm i'm very confident listeners have found incredibly uh thought-provoking fun and interesting thank you (laughs) 